Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Hi there, and welcome along to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host, Niall Campbell. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Stephen Bright. Dr. Stephen Bright is a clinically trained psychologist who has worked in the field of mental health for the past 15 years. He is currently Senior Lecturer at Addiction at Edith Cowan University and is also an Adjunct Research Fellow at Curtin University's National Drug Research Institute. Dr. Bright has a long-standing professional involvement with psychedelics and is one of Australia's foremost scientists in the field. Stephen is a founding member and Vice President of the organisation PRISM, that stands for Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine. He is also due to become one of the first ever Australians to successfully complete certification in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy through training issued by the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Dr. Bright primarily identifies as an ethnopharmacologist, and the through-line that connects his various strands of work is the study of the ways in which humans interact with psychoactive substances and how we can seek to optimise these complicated relationships. So enjoy our conversation, and I'll see you at the other end. Thanks very much for uh, agreeing to chat, Stephen. It's a real pleasure to be here in Edith Cowan University. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. <laughs> well, um, before off mic, we were chatting a little bit about some of the sort of media work in more mainstream media and then obviously in podcast land that you've been doing and how it's really brilliant to be hearing this sort of burgeoning interest from lots of different sectors like the startup sector, the more sort of human uh, well-being sector I suppose. But what I didn't want to do was go over old ground because I think that would be fairly tedious for you and I will link in the show notes to a lot of those other talks so people can see in the show notes and prep themselves with a few of those conversations. We wanted to do a little bit more of a deep dive into what's currently piquing your interest right now and also a real sort of state of the nation, like where are we at at the time of recording because it's moving so so quickly. Um, so, yeah, I suppose just straight off the bat, um, I would love to get a bit more of an update with regards to scheduling as it relates to MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Sure. So uh, in June or July last year, an application was made to the TGA to reschedule both MDMA and psilocybin from Schedule 9 prohibited drugs to uh, Schedule 8 controlled medicines. And the interim decision was made in January by the Therapeutic Goods Administration to not make any change to maintain MDMA and psilocybin as Schedule 9 prohibited drugs. Um there were a number of submissions received by the TGA that they considered. Uh, one of those was from uh, myself and my colleagues at Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine in which we provided partial support for the rescheduling but also outlined some of our concerns as to what could go wrong if the rescheduling were to occur too soon and in fact PRISM was cited in the interim decision as one of the reasons that the, the TGA had decided to maintain the current 
the, the, the status quo. Um, and not long after that, the TGA out of the blue announced that they were not going to be making a final decision until an independent committee had considered uh, done a done a, a deep dive on the literature. And so only within the last month or so that committee has been announced. So there's uh, three people that are the independent expert advisors. Uh, there's a pharmacist, a, a, a psychopharmacologist and a psychiatrist. And they will be handing their report back to the TGA around in October and then the TGA will make a final decision mm-hmm. after that's handed down. Is Are there names in the public domain or are they kept? Secret? Their names are in the public domain. Yeah, sure. them up. yeah so we'll, we'll look those up and... Uh, yeah, and just I think it's important so people can understand the sort of triangulation of areas of expertise, um, because I think that's just important generally for any. It's a major decision, and then you'd want to be very sure that you know all the bases have been covered. I yeah, think that's fair it, enough. It took the TGA a long time to announce who the expert advisory committee was, and I think that was partially due to. Um, anybody that has expertise in this area potentially having some sort of conflict of interest one way or the other. And so it seems like the three um, the, the three guys that they've brought together don't have any vested interest one way or the other. Um, but whether or not they're experts in psychedelics might be a bit questionable. Um, so I suspect that their report is going to um, just reaffirm what the TGA initially said, but with some more nuance and some more evidence um, to support not making a change at this particular point in time. Yeah, and I think what's important to, and with regards to the scheduling, uh, and it's uh, analogues with, say, American scheduling, we'll put those in the show notes as well so people can see because I know it's different between the TGA and the FDA, but um, when it comes to how, what normal precedent would look like, there was obviously this concern that it was there wasn't phase three trials completed, and therefore, in accordance with just normal due process, it was premature. So there was almost like someone at a poker table saying, "Check," you know, and, the, and it goes round again because uh, there's no agency, there's no like dog in the fight. It's just we're holding space until we get until you know the data's fully in which is i think totally fair enough but maybe we could map out what what does normal due process look like for the tga to approve something of a sim of a like a psychoactive substance yeah so normal drug development pathways would be a pharmaceutical company identifies a a compound a chemical that they believe is has some efficacy due to animal models they move into phase one trials which is just testing for safety um, provided that there's uh, no major incident they move to phase two which is starting to look at the efficacy of the treatment for the condition it's indicated for um, after a, a number of phase two trials have been completed it steps up to phase three trials which are looking more at uh, <clears throat> it's looking more at um, you know the real world setting so um, taking away some of the, the, I mean, it's still got scientific rigor, but trying to start implementing it in a real world environment and seeing if we still see the same results. And after a couple of phase three trials, then an application is usually made by the pharmacy, uh, pharmaceutical company to, um, to have it considered as a medicine. 
and it's um, you know the TGA needs to then consider what schedule it goes in. So for most medicines, they're even things that are now over the counter, they always put them in Schedule Four first, uh, unless it's an opioid drug or something like that where there's concerns around dependence. They'll put it in Schedule Eight um, because. At that point, the final trials happen, which are phase four trials, which is once the drug has already gone to market, uh, there's research that it needs to be funded by the pharmaceutical company to demonstrate ongoing efficacy and, more importantly, safety. Because as you start administering it to millions and millions of people, you start to see the one in a million um, adverse events, which I guess um, there's some parallels there with, with COVID vaccines. And it's been incredible to watch as a scientist, to watch how quickly that has moved. And they've been able to do it quickly with all of... Um, the same requirements for MDMA research or psilocybin research, it's just that um, life was a little bit easier for them because there was a sense of urgency that we needed to move this along very quickly. And so where some of my research paperwork might sit at a government department office for a six to eight weeks, um, these things were being signed off really quickly. And so that that, that yeah well, often what I find slows me down in conducting research is um, submitting documentation to, to, to the various um, regulatory authorities and, and waiting for their feedback on that. I guess in many respects MDMA and psilocybin are most closely aligned in the un- in, in the in that it's unconventional in the way that that um, it would be scheduled. It's it's mo- most similar to cannabis because cannabis in 2016 was changed. Uh, well, they added an entry into Schedule Eight, which allowed medical cannabis products to be um, to be prescribed and sold and and um, used by patients in Australia. And one of the issues we're facing now with medical cannabis is because the drug was approved as a medicine before the research really had all been done, we don't really know what the indications are for it. And, uh, you know, it's the, the government's not throwing a lot of money into medical cannabis to run large re- randomised controlled trials and phase three trials. And so it's less with, left now with the, the big cannabis companies to, to run those trials. And their motivation to do that at the moment is um, that CBD has been made a schedule three drug, which means it's over the counter. But before it can, any company can bring it to market, they have to have done the phase three clinical trials and they will need to have insurance in place and they will need to do the phase four trials. That's going to cost a lot of money. Um, and so if you think about MDMA and psilocybin in a, in a similar fashion, um, even if, even if it were to be rescheduled uh, as a medicine, it wouldn't be covered by the PBS and like medical cannabis, um, it would still be a compassionate access, which the TGA calls special access scheme. Um, so whether that's for medical cannabis or MDMA or psilocybin, it's still the same process. There's not a registered product um, and so as a consequence... Uh, we have to use this SAS pathway to allow patients to access medical cannabis and potentially in the future psilocybin and MDMA. So it sounds like there are, well, broadly I I agree. I think it was premature and I think that anyone sort of with looking at precedents could have said that and it was actually undermined, maybe the the, the sort of general inertia. Um, But there definitely are some lessons to be learned from it's a bit like you were saying with regulation in previous podcasts. You really only get 
one chance to cut so you measure twice and it's so much easier to, to turn things down than ratchet things up because then all of a sudden you run into sort of valid enough libertarian arguments and so um, I think it was we we should learn from that and what I think and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as a clinical psychologist there are the people who generally are advocating for this a lot, I think most people have um, a dog in the fight, so to speak. They have a personal relationship with, with psychopathology. There's a massively disproportionate number of people, in my opinion, who find their way into the field because of that. So there's this sort of visceral urgency. And then, obviously, you're working with people who, um, you know, the rivers of human misery run wide and deep. So there's that creates its own sense of urgency. So it can sometimes be hard if you're a rationalist scientist, to dispassionately say, look, in the grand scheme of things, we have to go slow. And whenever things become apart, an, an, an analogy that I see is with what sort of happened a while ago with um, high-profile advocacy for human trafficking. And I would watch talks from you know, human rights lawyers saying, I know what these celebrities want to do. They want to kick down doors and save babies, but this is a hugely complicated geopolitical situation and because we're filling out forms and saying let's not do x y and z it doesn't mean that we don't care about sex slaves you know so there's a sort of an emotional topspin which you see when you look at a lot of the administration about this and i think a, a nice article which i think consolidates and, and expands on some of the stuff we've talked about is the one that you and martin williams released through prism so i'll link again um to that um so Obviously, COVID threw a spanner in the works, and there's another social variable, which is now you mentioned about, oh, there's going to be outlier results. What we've seen in Australia with blood clots in the context of vaccines, I wonder how that's going to interface with when things go bigger and we ine inevitably get people off SSRIs who suicide, you know, not wanting to be catastrophic, but how are people's probabilistic intuitions now refined post covid i am concerned about how phase 4 will go as a result yeah look one one of my one of my concerns that i s expressed to the applicant um, in terms of it being premature is it was the worst time to put an application in to the TGA uh, about doing something, you know, quite extreme uh, when they need to be demonstrating that they are managing risk and they've, they've got, you know, COVID vaccines and all kinds of things that, that, that are front of mind for them at the moment. And so for them to, um, you know, take a really liberal approach and, and tick the box on that, it would go against everything that they're trying to message at the moment about the safety and the due process that they have in place to prevent um, harm occurring to people from medicines and Australian Australians accessing those medicines. It's um, how, how COVID and its, uh, you know, loads of after effects are going to interface with know how these things get rolled out is something obviously none of us could predict it and, and we were chatting off off mic about how you know we just can't predict the second and third and fourth order effects of a lot of this so we i think the other thing we have to fall back on is precedent and due process <laughs> regardless how that how that feels to our particular personality or life experience yeah it's it's, it's I, I i could really empathize with the example of human trafficking because 
uh, people have have written me some very nasty emails um, saying, you know, that I must be a heartless bastard um, to not just fully support um, the, the, the application that was made because people are suffering, people are in distress, people who are in distress and are desperate because current treatment modalities aren't working for them um, can't understand why anybody would step in the way of trying to roll this out as quickly as possible and it, 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 it like the human trafficking it is it's really complex there are a number of things that need to be taken into consideration um, one of one is the, uh, the the accessibility of the medicine so if MDMA was made a schedule 8 medicine tomorrow um, my back of the envelope calculations are that it would cost each patient about $20,000 to access one, um, one treatment. Um, so that really puts it out of reach of the people that are going to need it most. And, and so one of, one of uh, I guess, one of my responses to uh, you know, people that say that I, I, I must be quite heartless is that it's actually quite the opposite. I want to make sure that when this is done, it's done right and the people that need it most are able to access it because it's a registered therapeutic product and ideally it's on the PBS. Um, we already have research that's being conducted in hospitals and we have people trained up so that people can access it through our public health care system. I mean, Australia has a fantastic public health care system and I think for this to be able to, um, for, for equitable access, it's essential that it's integrated into our public health system so that people can access it. And it's, we, we, it's the ideal place for it because our mental health services have psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, occupational therapists, um, physicians, they, they have the team that's required to be able to do the work and they have beds, they have everything that's needed to do this. Um, they, just need, uh, they just need additional experience and training so that they, they uh, are able to do it safely and they obviously need it to be a Schedule 8 drug as well so that they're able to, to, to do that. The key... The key here is this rescheduling in due time, even though we've said we both feel that was premature, because that can then start people off to the races in terms of taking hypotheses, testing them, getting it out amongst all these practitioners. And you just will we'll just see this hockey stick, I think, understanding within the various different allied health professions. Um, on your uh, point about being available on the PBS, I believe that there's a big role for that, but I, I'm also of the opinion, and it's not both or either or, I think it's both and, I think there's a really important role to be played by the private sector as long as what they're doing is creating what I call an atelier. So an atelier is like the fashion house where they, they experiment with things and then it informs the high street. As long as there's a as long as the people who can afford this and want to, as long as there's a philanthropic angle. So I know there's some therapy centers that do a, like almost like a Tom's model issue. It's like one for one, like for like. So um, as long as they're able to generate the profits, which allow them to uh, give it free to people who, who deservedly need it. And also I think private sector, if they can generate their own income, they don't have to go and put loads of submissions in for grants, etc. So they can 
practice, best practice, and sort of almost control the means of production a little bit more. So you do find that in different sectors. Well, to be honest, I, I don't think there's really that much different bet difference between the not-for-profit and for-profit sector. The main difference is that the for-profit sector um, has a goal of making profit, and if they um, uh, if they have shares, you know, they have to keep their shareholders' interests in mind in making decisions. Um, but for me, uh, I, I agree. I think industry is going to be part of getting this across the line and, and we have to work – I have to work with industry. We have to work with industry. So um, it's not so much about a for-profit or a not-for-profit organisation. It's about uh, trying to figure out through due process uh, which organisations have integrity um, because there's plenty of not-for-profits that I don't – you know that, that you could argue don't have integrity and there's plenty of for-profit companies that have excellent integrity. So it's it's really not about it's like you said it's not either or it's and. Um, so, how would you say? I mean, and that speaks to a point you mentioned on another podcast where you were asked what keeps you awake at night. And you said corporatelia, <laughs> which I tend to agree with. But that isn't like a broad brush. That's that's there's an there's an energy of corporatization which has no is not subordinate to anything else other than maximizing profits and especially for shareholders. So it's not that there's, it's immoral, it's amoral. And I think it's the job of the people who can straddle these different worlds to, to say, you know, listen, this is how you can do this and, it, and bring costs down, especially in production of MDMA, but with a conscience that doesn't mean that you become some horrible, you know, <laughs> company, which is... Yeah, and for me, the, the, the corporate delics are Compass Pathways, Atai Life Sciences. They're the big players that are trying to patent everything. And I don't think some of their patents are going to hold up in court, but by putting the by by applying for those patents and and you know they've, they've all been signed off, um, it's allowed them to generate huge amounts of revenue. And um, look, I'm a psychologist, not a financial advisor, but I wouldn't be investing in those companies because. Uh, it feels like it's it's a bubble that's going to burst, and we've seen that in other in other markets where where uh, you know dating back hundreds of years with the uh, I think it was the tulip market. Um, everybody got excited about tulips, and then um, then uh, people were paying more for tulips than gold, and the, the the bubble burst. But my concern more so with the um, psych, uh, the corporate delics is um, that. Because they're because you know I do separate the corporate delics out from other for-profit organisations in this space. The corporate delics for me are solely focused on profit, solely focused on putting up share prices, and consequently they are throwing fuel onto the fire by putting out multiple press releases to just hype this market up yeah, as much as yeah. possible because that's going to put up their share price. Like Don King and Conor McGregor telling you how great. Yeah, it's it's it and it's and it creates like you said it's it's creates an it's it creates an artifact which creates real money that they can leverage but it just it, it's a it's a first principles thing it just it in the long run it it sort of fucks over every industry. If you just look at extrapolate it out over a long enough time period, I suppose when I'm when you're saying that, and it helps me to delineate where I think there's more scope f uh, for uh, really, you know, good conscience uh, private sector work is probably at the coalface in terms of therapy centres and residential facilities and things like that. Like I think there's a lot of 
goodwill there and there, as long as there's a lot of consultancy like with people like yourself who are involved in the research have done the training then hopefully that oversight will mean it doesn't lose the run of itself <laughs> yeah and look psychology is a good example of that there are some dodgy psychology clinics out there and i've got colleagues that have reported back you know who have worked for, for various clinics and there are excellent clinics out there that are genuinely interested in their in their patients health and, and mental health and and are providing excellent services uh, yeah, so so it's not about um, you know for profit or not for profit. It's it's about the the integrity and the, the conscious of the organisations that that are that are engaged in it. Yeah, the people that are involved in it, and um, yeah, hopefully aligning with um, people that have shared values of things like equitable access and shared values of. Um, integrity and, and, and these sorts of things. I think the reason it keeps me up at night is because as this market hypes, I don't care about the share price of Compass. What I worry about is the increased media focus on this because people who are distressed and are not responding to current treatments are desperate and desperate people will do desperate things. And it really concerns me that there there is anecdotal evidence of increasing numbers of people um, trying to DIY psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy or MDMA-assisted psychotherapy either on their own um, with a, with somebody that they know well, uh, with underground therapists in ceremonies. But there's this, there's this rapid increase uh, in people um using psychedelic drugs and and the national drug strategy household the national drug strategy household survey data actually shows that this increase this uptick in they call hallucinogens which i don't like but uh, there's definitely an uptick and anecdotally there's definitely an uptick as well and my concern is if that's happening in an unregulated fashion then there's risks in terms of the actual compounds themselves there's so many when I was growing up 20 years ago, um, acid was acid, uh, ecstasy contained MDMA and a bit of MD- MDA. Um, you know, heroin was heroin. There are thousands of novel compounds out there now and they're, they're, they've entered the market. Um, and some of my early research in sort of the 2010 onwards was looking at these novel psychoactives and, and the um, exponential growth in in them hitting the market and so there's no quality control in an unregulated market and people could potentially experience harm that way there's no feedback loop like APRA so if there is a dodgy shaman out there doing stuff the only way that that gets um that that something is done about that is if people in the community enough people speak up about it and um and do something about themselves which is which is um not ideal and 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 often people aren't speaking up because um for for fear for for various reasons people aren't speaking up when when things haven't been done so well in the underground scene because i think there are some fantastic underground facilitators out there but there are some that are less good as well and um i guess you know for me personally um the 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 line you you the line you walk past is is sort of the line you accept. So I, I I encourage people to to call out unethical behaviour, even if there may be consequences for doing that, because if you don't call it out, then you're kind of saying it's okay. Yeah, um, and this is why 
regulation isn't there definitely is a sector of people who are currently interested in psychedelics who are very very opposed just reflexively allergic to the concept of regulation but that is fine and I, I, I have sympathy with that but like you're saying you know if you have no regulation and you have a shaman who's working underground they might be wonderful but they might be the worst thing that ever happened to that person and is it possible that we can have someone who has this esoteric sensibility but also has a working with children check you know and that's like you can't have you have to have some sort of hybrid of the two uh, mm. and if if there's an extreme over regulation of something that like you said the U- you've talked about the u-shaped curve of of harm uh, i think it doesn't just extend to um you know the sort of downstream physiological effects of the drug it can be if you have a heavily regulated market uh, there's loads of issues with that because people go underground but then if it's uh you know not regulated at all then there's just it's just like hobbesian nightmare it's not good either mm. so um on that subject, I really want to pick your brains about. Um, th- there's going to be a lot of talk about the regulation around um, substances, and that's fine because a lot of different types of people can talk about that. But you're in a very unique position, and you're one of the very few people who's actually certified as an MDMA assisted psychotherapist in Australia. Almost. Oh, almost. almost. Sorry, sorry. So <laughs> maybe I'd love to just pick your brains on, you know, that as a segue into regulation around the therapy. So maybe just give a bit of a backstory of what the therapy you know the regulation of the therapy and, and the certification how did that come up for you and, and what does it look like yeah well i think one one thing um that i was thinking about as you were just talking is that there's been some conflation between decriminalization and the rescheduling of drugs they're, they're two different things and i think I'm all for the decriminalisation of MDMA, psilocybin, which would allow people to um, work in a less underground fashion because they're not breaking the law anymore. And I think organisations like the Australian Psychedelic Society, for which I'm a founding member, uh, Entheogenesis Australis, I think those sorts of organisations are pushing for decriminalisation. For, for me, the, the, the training, you know, the, the training in the context of, of regulation is um, twofold. So, you know, as I was saying, there, there's some, some fantastic people working in the underground and um, they have done that through um, their own experience and learning and um, I don't think it's that much different, um, you know, in terms of working above ground in that there's an apprenticeship that needs to take place. And that apprenticeship for me um, first started with doing, uh, well, I guess first being trained up, um, then going out and allowed to practice with people as, as, a, as a licensed psychologist. But really, uh, I feel like my uh, apprenticeship as a psychedelic assisted psychotherapist started at Rainbow Serpent Festival where uh, PRISM collaborated with uh, DanceWise and we were doing work uh, with people who were having challenging experiences with psychedelics. And so like the, f- the first person that I worked with, it was it's just such a humbling moment because... Um, I went in there with quite a lot of ego. I'm a, you know, I'm a clinically trained psychologist. I know all about psychedelics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my first first uh, patient uh, in my care, they had found uh, face down eating dirt. Yeah. He could speak one word and that was uh, 
love. Uh, love, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Heard this story? No, no, I just picked that. What he <laughs> said, yeah. Yeah, he, all he could say was love. Um, so I cleaned him up, uh, sort of mental health first aid stuff. And then I started trying to do some progressive muscle relaxation with him. And, uh, you know, he, that just was, that was never going to work. And I realized at that moment I had this, this uh, insight that uh, I need to throw out everything I've been trained and just start from scratch and work from the ground up. And that was holding space with him. Offering him some more water, he learned a second word: water. water. Love and the, water. <laughs> yeah, and he had the epiphany that love is water, and, uh, and yeah, water, water is, is love. love. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it was such a humbling experience. And then going back each year and doing that was such uh, a, a great opportunity to have to get experience. I think that's my concern with the with the rescheduling is that we don't have enough people that have got those sorts of experiences and so the the first part of my apprenticeship was was doing that um the the i guess probably the the next was um was after many years of trying uh attempt three looked like it was going to get up to get an mdma assisted psych, uh, psychotherapy trial up in australia after two failed efforts and in doing so, um, MAPS very kindly invited us, uh, myself and my co-therapist, to, who's, a, who's another clinical psychologist here in Perth. Um, we were invited to do the training they provided to, to, to us for free. We were with the other European psychotherapists that were being trained up for the phase three clinical trial in Europe. Um, and yeah, it was, it was an incredible, incredible experience. Hands down, the best training I've ever done. Um, no disrespect to anybody that's uh, provided me with training in the past, but that that was just incredible because we were um, maybe just to, to map it out. So with the with the maps training, there's five components to it. So the first component is an online component. And they make sure that you've read the manual and you 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 know you you know what's in it. The second part is the uh, the the set the five six day training course that we did. And what made it so exceptional was um, we were all staying together in the Netherlands um, and, and it was somewhere a little bit remote in the Netherlands. Oh, I can't pronounce. I, I, I learned to pronounce it, but I've since forgotten. Um, it's, it, yeah, it was, it was uh, a fair way south um, near the German border. Uh, and near the German and Belgian border, I didn't realise how big the Netherlands was until we went on a on a road trip from from Amsterdam to where this training was being conducted. But we were all on site together with the other therapists. Um, you know that the trainers were on site. We were having breakfast, lunch, and dinner together. Um, and so, you know, having the opportunity to have breakfast with Michael and Annie Mithoffer or, or maybe Rick Doblin or whoever else was in the room and, and just the other therapists as well um, and, and the bonding that occurred since then to the point where um, my co-therapist has maintained um, contact with one of the, the people that were doing the training with us and is hoping to um, purchase a, a ceremonial bowl for the MDMA administration um, because that's her, that's her jam is making these these bowls in the Netherlands, and so um, yeah, so we we, we we maintained contact with people, and also as a psychologist to to look at the different training pathways that are used overseas. I mean, myself and and, and my colleague, we introduced ourselves as clinical psychologists and observed everybody else if they could 
were well, I didn't realize this until afterwards. But I thought it was because they couldn't say they were a clinical psychologist. They were introducing themselves as psychotherapists because that is seen as a more esteemed um, profession than psychology and in continental Europe. Do you think? Yeah, 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 continental Europe, yeah. and um, yeah, they were talking about doing eight years of an internship. To become psychoanalytic, I would imagine, were they more of a psychoanalytic? Yeah, there was psychodynamic, uh, somatic. There was, there was, it was, it was just a really eclectic group of people that were all very open-minded. A number of them had no experience with psychedelics or MDMA up until they'd sort of been recruited into the trial and Mm -hmm. um, and and were doing this training. And yeah, so the so it was intense and the the it was intense also in terms of the length of every day like we were doing 12 hour days of training with the with the premise that if you can't sit down for 12 hours to do yeah. training how are you going to do an MDMA session which could go for 12 hours yeah which i thought was a good rationale um and you know you'd see people match fit in a way. You yeah, know, you can see like people thinking about that. Well, maybe maybe this yeah, isn't for me. For me. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was incredible to 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 be witness to so many of the um, of the sessions that Michael and Annie and others were able, from Maps were able to share, and <clears throat> that was quite scary as well because you know they they showed their worst case scenario and. Um, the patient was a female patient who had been sexually abused by her father and was having a transference reaction where she believed that Michael Mithoffer was her father and was behaving in accordance with that. And, and you know, he was so cool, calm and collected. And I was thinking, shit, I'm not sure I'd be that cool, calm and collected in, in that situation. Um, and I, I also felt like I'd drawn the short straw as um, – as, uh, you know, having having done all that harm reduction work at festivals, I, I know that psilocybin can be quite unpredictable, whereas wasn't really looking after too many people with MDMA, uh, taking MDMA because they were having a great time. Um, however, when you put the set and setting in place and you bring trauma into the equation as well, you end up with really, really intense psychotherapy for up to 12 hours. The, the, the thing with MDMA which I think does need to be understood, and I'd love to hear it just to pick you up on that, is <clears throat> I think there's a bit of... I, I notice this prevailing wind where it's like, okay, well, we have this, the classical psychedelics, you know, with a misnomer of hallucinogens, and then there's this... It's an entheogen, so, yeah, people put their eye shades on and, you know, they go into themselves. But in a way, I almost think because the the modal experience with MDMA, it's out there, there's hundreds of thousands of people taking it, it's it's consciously modulated because you're more lucid. It's a complete. Mm. It doesn't. It can't go past the consciousness. So the sort of culture is, oh yeah, well you know I can take shitloads of ackies and then I have a good time on whatever. But there's still a driver there, and the, you know in the brain, so to speak. Whereas you know someone takes a heroic dose of mushrooms or 500 micrograms. You know, the, the, there's, there's not a lot of communication then no, going no, on between the person that's holding that space it's, with it's, the yeah, patient. Even if you're taken in a recreational context, you're 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 not on the planet anymore for whereas MDMA if all of a sudden those things are modulated and we're seeing this the profundity of the experience I think can be absolutely enormous in a, in a different way and um, so the parameter of um, outcome and how non-ordinary the state of consciousness can be I think is something which therapists need to really understand it's not like oh MDMA is the easier substance that modulates the 
you know, working. Mm. And also the thing that it seems to have a great affinity for is unprocessed trauma. And if that comes up in its entirety, then all of a sudden you're in a very profound space, even if it's not hallucinogenic. So I don't know if that's been your experience. Yeah, well... I think one of the positive things of this application that was made to the TGA is, is there's been a lot – well, there's been some some good public dialogue, but actually the private dialogue that's been occurring has been really interesting um, where, uh, you know, I've been talking with psychiatrists who um, are trying to rank which is the most uh, – which is the riskiest one to work with psychologically and – uh, yeah, I'd, I'd argue that MDMA is probably the riskiest to work with um, because because psilocybin is unpredictable and it you know you, you can have extreme changes in state of consciousness. But as you were saying, the person's usually um, not able to communicate that until after the experience. And so I feel like with 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 psilocybin assisted psychotherapy, the preparation is really important to ensure that set and setting is right, to ensure that the, in, the intention's there, to really maximise the likelihood of the person having a, a, a mystical experience through creating that environment with, with ritual and ceremony and, and um, you know, with, with you might use an altar or whatever it is, but so that there's a clear start and, and end to that. Whereas... Uh, we you know we talk about integration so much in the psychedelic community. I feel like uh, with MDMA psychotherapy, I think the integration occurs. It's very different. So MDMA, yeah, it's happening uh, near the end of the session. It's happening the next day because it's also so clear. Those aha moments are also clear. Whereas with psilocybin, I think integration is important as well, though it's, hap- it, it's, it's a different sort of integration and, and it might be happening over a much longer period of time. So if we talk about substance use, for example, um, and we're using, using psilocybin to treat substance use, then you, you, uh, you oh, well, first, you don't want the person ceasing while they're having the experience because that's just going to be very unpleasant. And so then the integration then occurs afterwards. So they've they've had this profound um, moment of understanding that they really need to change this behaviour. And so the integration then is about well, how are you going to put that into action, and what are you going to what are you going to change with, with with depression? It's about um, you know what's how's the person going to change their environment so that they are living in a more positive environment that's going to allow them to consolidate their newfound understanding of themselves and the world. But, yeah, I, I feel like they're, they're such, they are such different drugs and the psychotherapy required consequently is very different as well and the emphasis on preparation and integration might be different across the two therapies and, and as we already said the, the actual drug assisted therapy is very different as well yeah and to talk what's what what i find really fascinating and then i'd love to sort of put a pin in and come back to you know what your training was like and, and how it actually ran and what your thoughts are now but this the thing that i find most fascinating about the psychotherapeutic component was it was very non-directive so and which i thought i really liked from a methodological point of view because you know if you want to insult a therapist, you insult the modality. Like, you know, it's it's not the same in other fields. It's like there's a sort of marry. There's a there's a very enmeshed relationship there. So I like that it was very non-directive because it 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 didn't monopolize some style of therapy. And 
you know, as being very akin to MDMA, because then you'd have a whole group of people who are like, oh, well, that's our thing, whether it's the CBT crowd or psychodynamic people or whatever. So it's quite non-directive. What seems to have emerged, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, almost like very autonomous sub-personalities becoming very expressed, and then that really fitting best into the internal family systems model coming out of people spontaneously once they were peaking on the MDMA, um, which I found fascinating. What was your, I mean, maybe I've blundered that a bit, but how did the sort of emerge, and then the the therapist would would follow the lead, I would imagine, of the person in whatever modality that it it seemed like a best fit. So people are going under, it's quite non-directive, I assume there's a period of quiet, how did the therapy therapeutic style emerge and what what patterns did the metaverse and, and the various people involved in the study start to notice one of the first things um that we were told in the training is that they had been trained in holotropic breathwork and internal family systems theory and that's why that you know though you were seeing it done this the, way the clients the, the the participants do you mean or the, 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 yeah. the annie and michael had been tra- that, that was their training so that's why it has that flavor to it uh, but they, what they were sort of trying to express very strongly is to not replicate what they're doing. To that 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 MDMA and I believe psilocybin as well can easily fit within many different modalities. It's more, um, I guess, what they were trying to to express was their concern of people going out of this and trying to um, do 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 that model and that's not what they're trained in what they were encouraging people to do was run with the models that they're trained in and add the MDMA to it or add psilocybin to that so I think there's um, a, a lot of different modalities that can can be used essentially the 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 school of psychotherapy that's being used is just a framework to help the clinician and the client hang the experience and integrate the experience and so um, the therapeutic modality is going to impact um, the way in which integration works. And there already have been examples of, um, you know, CBT being used with MDMA. And so I think it, it can fit. It, the MDMA is a catalyst and it doesn't really matter what model of therapy you're using because the most important thing in therapy that we know now, um, well, we've known for some time, but we don't seem to communicate it very well is the relationship. I, I mean, I, 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 I tend to agree, that, but I suppose that is a falsifiable question. You know, you say, well, it can work with any modality. And I would say that it can, but you would expect, like with anything else, there to be a, you know, dimensionality. You know, there's... There's plenty of ways to hit a golf ball down a fairway, but different styles. But some there's are better be than others. Exactly. Yeah. There's going to be a, probably a normative distribution. Some are excellent, some are not. And so my concern, I suppose, is that if people are given too much free will, then they'll just fall back on their antecedent modality and they'll say, and then they'll just post hoc rationalize how it fits into CBT because actually that's what they've done for the last 20 years. So, um, but th- again, that's a falsifiable question. So, and that's why I think if it's Schedule 8, then you, you know, if you and I are sat here and I say, no, I'm, I'm adamant that. And you give my theory as to why there's it's all to do with subautonomous personality and listen to what Dick Schwartz has said and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, no, no, it'll fit better into this model. We can just run experiments and, you know, you take N of 30 and I take N of 30 and we do that and see who replicates and who, who and then test the outcomes, you know, down the track. So I suppose I think that people who are in the therapeutic space should very much try every modality that they can. But then when the data comes back in, 
that doesn't happen in other it doesn't happen in surgery where if someone has like, well, this is the technique that I prefer as a surgeon. They're like, yeah, but it gets more post-operative complications. So there's a, there's a degree of technique sensitivity. So it's like, yeah, you're better with that technique. But if there's a clear bit of daylight between modalities, then there is a case where it's like, well, it doesn't really matter what you were trained in. This is shown much, much better results. So it's probably better that you at least, uh, you know, have essentially what you're describing with surgery is evidence-based medicine. And we've yeah. tried to, you know, so psychology and psychiatry like to think they're sciences, despite there being a lack of um, objective um, measures. You know, we, we, we're measuring constructs. They're called constructs because we made them up. And now we're measuring <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, <laughs> them like, <laughs> we them made up. them up, so surprise, surprise, they were. So, so um, yeah, so I, I think, uh, I think I, I, in, in training other therapists up, I talk about evidence-informed practice, which is um, having informed eclecticism, being able to draw on your experience and what you know you do and what you can't do and what you're not trained in or what you are trained in, the client presentation in terms of not only their diagnosis but their preference and their personality and also what the evidence says to sort of bring it all together. And so it's about taking an, an informed eclectic approach or... Having a t- mixed bag toolkit that does fit particular circumstances. Do you have any, I mean, I'm not going to hold you to this, but like from seeing the training and, you know, being a, a clinical psychologist, do you have any intuition about what, maybe not specific modality, but what style of therapy will tessellate best with 120 mic, you know, micrograms of MDMA? Yeah, I think um, foundational level, humanistic, um, psychodynamic, not maybe as some people think psychodynamic, uh, but more about the interpersonal process, transference, counter-transference. I think it's really good to have a foundation um, of, of understanding interpersonal process and being able to work with process um, in the therapy. And the reason I the reason I say the the former in terms of humanistic is as you said it is quite non-directional and it's based on the assumption that people have an inner healing intelligence. And you know, my, Michael has probably said this story thousands of times as a as an ED doctor. Um, someone comes in. Uh, he cleans up the wound and stitches it up, but he doesn't heal them. The body heals itself. And so. Um, for therapists that are wanting to work in this space, then you have to trust in the process. And so I think the, the you know at, at the at the most basic level, that's kind of the humanistic model. Um, I think other models, um, maybe for, for psilocybin um, acceptance commitment therapy, is probably going to be a good fit. And so yeah, I agree that there are some modalities that are going to be better fits than others. Uh, I think what the myth offers at the training we're trying to express is is don't try to force fit our model into your model, extend your model and use the drug as a catalyst for that model, and maybe you know branch out and learn some some other models that um, to to expand your toolkit because the more tools you've got in the in, in the toolkit, yeah, the better um, it's going to be. And I suppose two things on that. I think um, I really appreciate that the myth offers are sort of saying don't form a personality cult around us because, oh my goodness, there's a there's a proclivity for that in people who tend to gravitate towards psychedelics. And another thing which I, I, I have an intuition will become important is for people to develop um, somatic-informed therapy because the visceral sense of safety that people experience, which is deeper than cognition, uh, is, I think, 
absolutely cornerstone to, to help people get in, if they've, especially if they have developmental trauma, to get into the window of tolerance to then do the work of a therapist. You know, mm. to actually have a conversation. It's like that is a that is a that is a physiological prerequisite to doing you know, a discussion about modalities is completely moot before that is met. I don't know, like from just speaking to people who've who've utilized MDMA underground, that seems to be the common theme is I felt safer in fifteen minutes than I have in my entire life. There's a there's a uh, PhD student in UWA called Tobias Penno who is actually doing a research project on this right now. So he's interviewing therapists from around the world and looking at how they um, integrate somatic um, therapy into um, either MDMA or, other, or, or psychedelic assisted psychotherapies. Mm. Definitely. Uh, to mention his Tobias, I'm hoping to have on the podcast. I think we've chat, we were at an event on Sunday and he was there. Um, but one of the things Tobias I've heard speak about, which really I thought was really useful, was, and I think this is where the, psych, the, the, the therapy might go as an extra duration, is the superimposition of a type of psychodrama. Because from what I've seen in the videos, and there's a link to the documentary Trip of Compassion, because I don't know how much of the, I'm sure maybe n- even de-identified stuff from your trainings is not available. And so if people are wanting to see like what we're talking about and you know how it looks, Trip of Compassion on Vimeo is a great place to start. But I sort of felt that people on that, so you know, have people who've been sexually abused or kidnapped and horrible, just an in sort of ambient level of post-traumatic stress because they lived in <laughs> in the Middle East in, in, in Israel. They were like, I felt they were they were wanting to go into three-dimensional space to live, to sort of process the trauma in a non-verbal way. And I don't really think that the physical setup for the space was, was you know, it's not optimized for that. Is that a sense that you would have that there's, you know, as long as people are, like psilocybin retreats, well, well, people are in a circle and holding space also means holding a bucket so someone can wander around them and be sick into it, you know, take them to the toilet. So I feel like, is that something that you would have a sense as a psychodramatic dramatic component? Yeah, and I think um, the, the therapy space for the drug-assisted sessions needs to, there needs to be room for people to, to move about. Um, and you know that, that, that was actually built into the, to that part of the training was, uh, from that part of the MAPS training was um, understanding, even if you don't come from a somatic approach, that um, there are... There, their energies will come up and people need to get that out and it's it's actually therapeutic to to allow them to do that and so whether that's dancing or punching something or um, having pressure placed on them or whatever it is um, that that is an essential component so you need a space that's large enough to allow somebody to to um, let roll. out let, yeah <laughs> Brazilian jiu- like roll around literally <laughs> yeah. roll around be because safe. yeah, yeah but it, whatever it is that they're in healing intelligence is, yeah, is sort of suggesting they need to do you need to have the space to be able to do that so and to pick your brains a bit more you know you're watching these videos and and seeing these sessions um could you maybe describe and i'm sure everyone was totally different but like i don't think people have a good sense of you know a 12-hour session like are people talking the whole time you know how what was the sort of rhythm of the session in terms of the the dynamic between the therapists and and the client um so Similar to psilocybin, there was a um, well. Firstly, you know the person uh, presents at the clinic. There needs to be some screening conducted to make sure that they they physiologically and psychologically are, are safe 
to be given the MDMA, um, then it's usually done in, in a somewhat ceremonial fashion to create that set and setting. Um, and then they, the, the, the patients will then spend long periods of time um, with two therapists just holding space while they've got eye shades on. Um, and having uh, done the role plays, uh, you know, even without MDMA, that's very powerful having two people holding space with you for, for four, even 40 minutes to an hour. That's, it's, it's intense. Uh, so how, how would you define, if people are thinking, what does role, you know, what does role play and holding space mean? Like what, 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 how would you define those terms and explain that to it's a good question because I was never taught it in in my <laughs> studies. Um, yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. I, I really had to. It was that that aha moment I had back at Rainbow Serpent 10, 10 plus years ago. Um, so for me, holding space is being present with the person um, and being in the moment with them, and uh, being being able to judge. When is the time to sort of tap them on the shoulder and and just check in and make sure everything's all right? Maybe check in that they've they've remembered their intention. And when is when when is it not a good time to do that and to just continue to to hold space? Um, and and that could go for, for up to two hours. Um, that was kind of the the recommendation was around two hours. If you haven't they have if they haven't checked in, then it's probably time to check in with them. And then um, after, after they've sort of had that uh, first experience, um, usually they, they would come out of it really wanting to talk and they've got a lot to say. Um, and because they've had this uh, epiphany and they're, they're wanting to – and they've got the communication skills to communicate that um, and then using the whatever therapeutic model that you're using to help frame and help them understand that and help the therapist understand what, what that epiphany is. And then they might go back again um, depending on – so it's, it's, it is non-directive and it's based on the assumption that the, per, the patient is coming in with the intention to get better, that they are – um, that they are willing to be open to the experience, whatever comes up, and that they can trust in their inner healing intelligence and that the therapist can trust in the process that's transacting during during that long period of time. Yeah, so it's there's a lot of gray skills there that it's hard to, you know, get on a, on a PowerPoint and then, you know, pass an exam with. It's just that's all. It sounds very experiential. Um thanks for it's just so illuminating to hear that because we one of the things which you and martin had alluded to was there is going to be a bottleneck even if these things get through where we do not have enough therapists and then knowing the way politicians like to expedite things then we would see a big clot of people getting rushed through and that could be super dangerous because people could really get in over their head and if they look if they look to people who have, you know, okay, well, there's the clinical psychologist. With all due respect to psychologists, they're not that well placed to deal with non-ordinary states of consciousness. And I was thinking... It's not It's not, it's not it's part, part of the of training the, program. Rosalind Watts says it very yeah. well. She says, you know, we were never trained to do this and yeah. we've just been making it up on the fly. <laughs> and she's very humble about it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this is what we've learnt worked and this yeah, didn't yeah. work. And so we've tried this and we've yeah. tried that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not part of the training. And I think, 
um, social workers, counsellors. There's there's lots of people that will make good psychedelic assisted psychotherapists, and that we need to maybe um, take away this strange thing we have in Australia of of putting you know one profession in higher prestige than the other because it's not about the profession; it's about the person and what they bring, their personality, um, their 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 training. Um, so you know, and so I, I said there were five components to the maps training. So I'm only up to component two. So component three then is um, uh, an experiential component where um, ideally uh, you fly to the US and and um, take MDMA. Yeah, in a randomised controlled trial. So there's two yeah. sessions. One is a placebo, and one is the MDMA session. What's fascinating, having talked to people that have been through that part of the training, is um, when the, some a lot of people that got the placebo first and are MDMA naive actually thought the placebo was MDMA really? because of the power of two people holding space for that period of time. They, they, they didn't know different and the therapists even at times didn't know different uh, because of the, you know, the because it's different than working with a patient in that, you know, it's a, it's a therapist doing this experiential work. Um, unfortunately, due to COVID, um, haven't had the opportunity to do that and, and MAPS have got to work around. Um, so uh, myself and my co-therapist are going to do um, some holotropic breath work or something where we do a retreat for a weekend. And it's, it's partly about um, trying different things, being open to different experiences, but also developing that bond and connection with your co-therapist. Then after that, there's um, a series of role plays and they have to be videotaped and um, sent back to MAPS to get feedback from the MAPS training staff. And then after that, they will allow you to uh, see one patient, run one patient through. And Here in Australia. Yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. next step for us yeah, is oh, really sure, sure. Um, running the first patient through, um, videotaping everything from start to end, including the screening process and the other psychologist that's going to do the screening for us uh, and getting feedback on that. And ideally, um, they may, uh, hopefully, they will give us some feedback on, you know, we can tweak this and tweak that and it'd be better to do this and less of that. Uh, but they can also say, we want to see another video. So you run another patient through and they go through with a fine tooth comb through all of that um, again. And then basically you're, you're, you're certified by MAPS to provide MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And I think, you know, that, that level of training, we don't have it in Australia, anything like that. Yeah. So it's a very considered, you know, step-by-step comprehensive approach. So, um, just so I'm clear then, you'll, obviously because of COVID, you haven't been able to take MDMA, but th- I mean, they, they, Rick Doblin's argued very eloquently in different places for how that is an absolute, I think it's totally essential for, you know, to inform your, your work uh, as a therapist in this setting. It's totally reasonable. Will that mean then that if you're with your co-therapist working as a dyad here in Australia, you would be administering MDMA under some... Like, would you administer the MDMA with your co-therapist here? Yep. So that would be the first legally administered dose of MDMA in Australia. 
Technically, no. MDMA was oh. administered at Swinburne University to test driving performance. No, the results were never published because they weren't that <laughs> interesting. <laughs> um, people like to tailgate other cars. That was about it. So yep. they wanted to get, get yep. closer to the other cars. People were less aggro. Who probably, probably drove better. But, than the but outside of that, I don't. Yeah. yeah. So outside of the pathological paradigm, this is the first. You know, uh, that's. I mean, I don't. That's a really big deal, and I think fair play for. If anybody deserves it, it's you because of the work you've done as an ethnopharmacologist, like for many decades. And when I came in, you were like writing reports. So a lot of this stuff is not dramatic taking MDMA. Most of it is, by the looks of it, writing documents. Paperwork, and yeah. Paperwork, Paperwork boring, boring. applying for permits, yeah. um, registering trials. Yeah. Getting the applications yeah. knocked back, um, <laughs> installing safes. It's there's all the logistics that goes with it. Yeah, is um, yeah, I, I did. I, I mentioned before we started recording. I had this romantic idea of what clinical research would look like, and I'd be doing you know MDMA assisted psych- psychotherapy, and that'd be the core um, part of the work that I, I was doing. But there's there's so much bureaucracy and paperwork. So if you want to be a if, 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 in this current environment at the moment, if you want to do this work, you, you need to really enjoy paperwork. Yeah, well, I think I was pick, hopefully picking some people's interest because there are some people. My wife uh, loves paperwork, so she uh, gets very excited about that, whereas I just think, well, you can do all mine then. <laughs> um, but also, I th- there's a lot of people who probably don't realize how much experience they have with non ordinary states. Like, I'm thinking any uh, emergency physicians, you know, ED, paramedics hypnotherapists, psychoanalytic people, pre, you know, people in the clergy, uh, uh, bouncers, you know, like there's a lot of people that sort of organically know how to hold space for people in non-ordinary states of consciousness. And of course they don't have the training, but what I'm very excited about is people from completely different silos of expertise coming to this, doing the core training, understanding things, getting certified and, and then bringing their expertise, you know, from totally different fields. Because I think we need... We don't necessarily we need more therapists, but we don't just need therapists. We need all the full gamut of professional areas to to help, you know, flesh this out into into something that's desperately needed. I think. Yeah, well, because people are going out doing sort of the DIY, or it might it, it might just be through interest. You know, there's so much media coming out; people are just curious. Um, so the Australian Psychedelic Society now for some time has been running integration circles um, around the country and only this year has started running them in Perth. And uh, we yeah, it's fascinating to, watch, to, to listen to everybody that was sitting in the circle and um, what, their un- what their experience was, um, what they were trying to integrate, what integration meant to them. It seemed to mean something different to everybody sitting in the room. And so we're, we're wanting to um, make that something that's uh, sustainable and, and sort of something that occurs ongoing rather than just this four, uh, four integration circles that were run. So last night um, the Perth committee met and put down some, some sort of a framework around um, what do we need, what are the prerequisites to ensure that we feel comfortable um, that the people running these integration circles have what's required, and and what we decided on is that it it one it needs two people, and we just need one person that has the the the, the whatever the piece of paper, and the other person doesn't have to have a piece of paper, but they need to have 
um, some sort of experience with psychedelics and, you know, ideally a bit of both. But um, but that way it allows people like you're talking about that don't, um, that don't have the piece of paper but actually do have a lot of experience with working in, with people in altered states of consciousness, um, that, that's the perfect – for me, that's the perfect sort of coupling is bringing those sort of two people together to co-facilitate. Yeah, that's such a good point. And the image that comes to mind, mate, we both enjoy a bit of wakeboarding is like you've got someone driving the boat and you've someone who's the spotter in case someone falls off. So that model I'm thinking of of two therapists co-running uh, a group session – We've both worked in AOD settings. It's quite common, you know, because you need someone to be spotting. Someone's doing content and someone's doing process. process exactly. Yeah. Some, that person just associated, so you can sort of alert the person to talk to that. So um, that sounds like a great, hopefully that excites people who maybe don't have the piece of paper and don't necessarily want to get the piece of paper, but want to be in some, you know, ostensibly involved. Um So you were asked once before, Stephen, like what, you know, keeps you awake at night, but to put a bit more sort of, positive spin on that so we know what keeps you awake at night what gets you up in the morning like what we're on the cusp of a lot of things here what are you excited about going forward like what what keeps you churning through this paperwork and talking to people like me (laughs) that's such a good question i don't think many i don't think i've been asked that question before um one i run on adrenaline um so when i wake up i usually wake up about five o'clock in the morning and i'm pumped ready to go um, so I'm just biologically wired that That's way, but th- there's more, there's obviously more to it than that because, um, you know, I, th- I think anxiety, for example, is pathologized. If, if we didn't have any anxiety, why would you get out of bed in the morning and just lie in bed? Just, there's, there's no anxiety. Um, uh, maybe anxiety is not the right word. Stress, you know, we, 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 it's actually, there's good stress and bad stress and we need a little bit of that in our lives. And, um, I think... What gets me up in the morning is uh, I'm very blessed to be in a job most of my career now that I love. I, I actually want to go to work in the morning. Not not everybody can, can say that. And uh, in the current role, I love teaching students. I, I, I see that I'm training the next generation of people, that some of which will... Um, you know, potentially be psychedelic assisted psychotherapists. That my students are, are really keen in to to figure out how they're going to work in this space in five or ten years from now. Um, I guess part of my my role is the research, and um, I'm just I'm a, I'm a I'm a scientist at heart, and and I'm curious, and so the opportunity to to understand more and realise I actually know less. Um, each time I learn something new, I realise I know less. Um, that, 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 st- that excites me, that curiosity and um, wanting, to, wanting to see what organically emerges each day um, because, yeah, all kind of, I, I've become a bit of a beacon for people that, that want to do research in this area and so... Um, maybe at least once a week, twice a week, I've got people contacting me. Uh, I've got an idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, I, I, yeah. and and I call. I try yeah. to call people back, and or I Good email on, people yeah. back. Sometimes it's you know, sorry, I, I yeah, don't have busy. capacity at the moment to do this, but um, yeah, I ring people up and say that's a really interesting idea. Mm. Let's let's do something with that. That's brilliant because I mean, you just need that hive mind of people for just. 
it would just never have conceptually occurred to you to do something. You know, we all get into our ruts of thinking. Um, so on that point, let's say you've got, you're an adjunct professor. What's your current role? You're at Edith Cowan at the moment. Senior lecturer. So you're senior lecturer here. So it's the equivalent of an assistant professor yeah. in the US, or different senior countries, different <coughs> systems. Different scheduling, different, you know, classification. <laughs> um, so you teach, what do you, you know, what type of students do you teach and what is the content of what you're teaching? So I, I coordinate a course called Addiction Studies, which is a misnomer. Um, I did it here as an undergrad 20 years ago um, as a minor because it wasn't offered as a major then. Uh, it, it's a really, it should be called uh, ethnopharmacology, but nobody would enrol in it because they wouldn't know what it was. Um, so it's sort of maintained this 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 name. But really, it, the course is about... Um, understanding alcohol and other drugs, understanding human behaviour, understanding what how you can assist people to make successful behaviour change, understanding the theories of behaviour change and applying those. And so by third year, um, so it, right now, um, tomorrow I've got first year students that I'm teaching psychopharmacology. So each week we look at a different drug, we look at the psychopharmacology of it, look at the potential harms and how we can reduce harms and you know, we'll be talking about pill testing and all of these sorts of things. Um, and then uh, uh, the other class I'm teaching at the moment is uh, third-year counselling skills. Uh, so I do two units with counselling. So the first semester they learn the fundamentals of, um, of, of working one-to-one -one with somebody uh, with a focus on motivational interviewing as a, a bit of a foundation for people to, to then platform from. Um, and but also learning the applying the theories of psychopathology to understand how to pull together a formulation and a treatment plan um, so that our undergrad students the reason I came back to ECU from Melbourne because I was in, a, in I had a great job in Melbourne that I liked as well um, <laughs> I was I was a, a senior senior dual diagnosis consultant senior psychiatrist uh, senior psychologist at uh, Monash Health that was an awesome role because I do a bit of consult work a bit of training a bit of research I like I like doing a little bit of everything uh, but what drew me back was this this major and the um, that doing competency-based, you know, skills-based learning in undergrad where they have to submit video assignments to demonstrate their capacity to, to engage in motivational interviewing, to do assessments, to, to, to do all those things so they should be able to graduate and walk straight into an AOD service and be pick up a client that's been referred into the service, do an assessment, start doing some motivational interviewing, identify the bits they don't know and, and speak yeah. with their supervisor about that. Well, I think it's an interesting um, juxtaposition, a very important juxtaposition. That that's, you know, we're talking about psychedelics and that's like, you know, we, we've, we've focused on MDMA, but we can go a lot further out there if we're saying, you know, 5-MeO-DMT. It's like the, 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 the limits of the esoteric discussion is, are we limitless, but that's such a systematic approach as well. You know, that is really your sort of granular get back to the, the undergirding systems of how you hold a patient, how you process a patient, how you cover all the bases. So I think the, what I call the woo-woo and the nuts and bolts, it's very interesting to see people who have, you know, a foot in both both. Uh, definitely both got a points. foot in both camps. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, how have you found your training recently with, the, um, with MAPS? Has that informed the way you think about those foundational elements of psychotherapy? Uh, it's just reaffirmed it really. For me, it was the aha moment doing the harm reduction work, trip sitting people, 
Um, and I think going back to your question, what 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 gets me out of bed in the morning in terms of teaching is I'm teaching students things I didn't get taught. And so I do talk about holding space and I don't just say, you know, and the research shows do CBT, we do CBT and we do it in class and, and we, you know, they, they do their own thought diaries. And unfortunately the way psychology works at the moment is that it's rats and stats for the first three years. Then you do a, an honours thesis, which is like a mini PhD. Then you start learning how to become a psychologist. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I really like the fact that I get to do the the nuts and bolts stuff with the undergrads. I, I don't know anywhere else that, that sort of does that at the undergraduate level. And so my students are psychology students. They are... Counselling masters. Yeah, I get ca- ca- counselling students. Um, so these are all undergrad students. I do teach postgrad as well. So I teach uh, into the Master of Nursing and the Master of Public Health, basically a, 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 a condensed version of that whole undergraduate degree in one unit. But the undergraduate students, um, youth work, criminology, health promotion, um, occupational health and safety. There's just it's just a, a very broad church of, of students. Yeah. Which is which is which is actually really really cool to to hear about what they're doing in their course or allowing them the counselling students for example um, that have covered all the theories of psychoanalysis you know I, I give them a video to do a formulation on if you want to do Freudian theory if you think it fits go for it but if it doesn't fit um, <laughs> yeah, nice. I'll tell you what doesn't fit yeah it's nice and then I think it's like um, that's really it's really interesting to hear these people from very different fields because you know. Everything is worth a try, but then as long as we all sort of quantify the outcomes, it's like, I don't know, it's like mixed martial arts. It's like you're more than willing to come in with this particular style, but these things are all going to compete. And then what tends to happen, I would imagine, is a sort of hybrid, you know, a sort of you distill down the best components of all and then people leave with a bit more of a broader understanding of how to heal, help people to heal themselves. Uh, it's fascinating. So and and the, the outcomes for me, I, I, I have to share one with you, um, is the, the, like the, the emails I get years later of people, um, even this, this year with a couple of fourth-year students have emailed me just saying, thank you so much, I'm so glad that I took the addiction studies, I'm doing honours now, we're doing formulations, nobody else knows what a formulation is, we're having to demonstrate the micro skills of counselling and nobody's done that before, um, so I feel like I'm a step ahead of everybody else because I had the opportunity to participate in those classes. Fantastic. And I would imagine some subset of these people and the people who approach you are going to end up in this space. So this is again why the TGA thing is so premature because it's like we can't expedite these people through the process, you know. So if people are wanting, and I know this is a bit of a generic question, but if people are wanting to get involved, what advice would you have for them? Not of how to find you, but what they should think about and do before they send you an email or somebody like you. Well, the first thing um, I have, yeah, I have been asked this before, so it's good. I've got a, a prepped answer. Yeah, yeah. It's to don't focus on um, the outcome. Focus on the process. Focus on uh, what what is it that you enjoy? Is it anthropology, psychology, yeah. social work? It really doesn't matter what what the profession is. If you want to go into research. Um, then obviously you want to be getting good marks. So you want to be studying something you like so that yeah. you, you're able to do that. 
um, don't do an honours project on psychedelics, do an honours project on something that you're going to get first class honours on. Um, focus on focus on um, you know if you want to go down the, the the clinical trials pathway, do a PhD. Even the PhD doesn't have to be in psychedelics because really? absolutely not. Mine wasn't. Yeah, yeah. I, I looked at I looked at um, uh, Foucauldian analysis of, of media. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> has nothing to do with psychedelics. Yeah. What honors uh, and PhD uh, training people is in transferable skills, so project management. Yeah filling out forms, yeah, uh, yeah, applying yeah. to ethics committees. It's about developing those generic um, transferable skills that then can be translated into um, into the research space later on. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's, um, I, I feel like people get fixated on the idea, yeah. I want to I work in psychedelics, so I yeah. need to do projects on yeah. psychedelics. Um, it's, it's really not that important. Um, all of the... All, all of the people working in the space at the moment in Australia haven't done honours projects yeah. or PhDs in this area. There's one or two that have, but most of us have, have gone through the traditional pathway and then been able to translate those skills into doing clinical so research. I think you're so right. Those sort of, um, at the minute, I would imagine the people who are like highly conscientious and know how to get things done from a legislative perspective are very useful but is there any is there any particular thing like everything will be needed in its own good time if you could wave a magic wand and have like 10 people walk into this office who have high level skills in certain areas to help you do what you need to do you know to to sort of maybe make this pbs medication or or whatever the case is just get it out there in in a sensible reasonable way what sort of skill sets are you you know hankering for um, an understanding of drug development pathways, like we talked through at the start, the different uh, understanding how that works, understanding how to um, understanding how to work with ethics committees, how to put in grant applications to get funding to do research. Um, yeah, I, I, I often have, I guess. I do supervise some uh, some honors and masters projects because you know the students are really keen to to, to focus on that. Um, but at the end of the day, they they're just they they they're learning transferable skills and um, they obviously enjoy the opportunity that they get to do the research on whatever it might be, microdosing or um, urban based ayahuasca. Uh, phenomenology. I've got all kinds of projects on the go at the moment. Um, what was the question? Uh, just uh, asking you about, you know, what skill sets, like whilst everything is needed, you know, if you had a magic wand and you could have a few different types of people help you out. Project uh, management, project yeah. Management, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, managing complex processes. And, and I also think a, a component of project management is change management, mm. which usually comes before it at a corporate level. So, yeah, um, definitely. There, there are people in corp- in the corporate world that have the skill sets that are required to do a lot of this work. Um, like I, I've got a friend I went – I didn't go to school with. I, I knew after school um, that moved back to Western Australia from Adelaide to work with one of the local cannabis companies here as, as the chief – Yeah, I don't know, CEO, whatever um, – 
and he worked in mining, but it was trans. He could transfer everything that he learned and started writing all the standard operating procedures and looking up, you know, how do we import seeds and what are the processes and, and creating all of those supply chain people as well. You know how to focus on the supply chain would be important as well. Did you say that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, understanding. Um, understanding how to figure things out mm-hmm. and then map it out so we've got so yeah. the, the next person coming along yeah. it's going to make their life easier, easier because yeah. they've got someone's already mapped out that yeah. process how do you streamline security protocols so that you can tick off boxes to say yeah we have a there's just so many different people it's like not everybody needs to be you know sitting as an energy healer for 12 hours in a room you know it's like you don't need you don't need to change your core personality or your core profession in order to work in this space um look i'm very conscious and appreciative of your of your time um and we've sort of we intentionally drilled down on a few areas instead of you know there's so much more to talk about Uh, i'd love to invite you back on and we can you know touch base on different things um in a broader sense then, away from MDMA, away from psychotherapy in that context and away from the sort of more, you know, dry legislative stuff, what in the space of psychedelia is really like just piquing your interest right now? What are you just so keen to learn more about? Mechanism of action. We don't know why it works. Yeah, it's just the deeper understanding of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we, we don't really, we don't understand... There's lots of hypotheses out there as to what might be going on. Uh, psychological flexibility, um, the default mode network has been talked about a lot. Um, the mystical, the, the mystical experience itself correlates with um, remission in depression. There's 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 so much um, there's, there's there's so much data already now generated, yet still so many questions remain unanswered. How does how does it work? Because if we understand how it works, then we can um, then we can amplify those things that work to make it work even better. better. So that what you talk about is the instead of the path, the inverse of the pathological paradigm. It's like how do we maximize the utility? No, utility is the wrong word. I don't know. Maximize benefits. Is that yeah, what yeah. I've, I've, I've actually coined that. I, I, yeah, I gave, a, I gave a talk, talk in 2016 yeah. on yeah. Um, benefit maximization. I, you, you said that in a TED talk, and that's. I thought when I heard you say that, I was like, this is exactly what we need to do. And there's so many ways to do that. So as long as we're all pulling in the same direction, knowing this person is trying to, you know, tweak the therapeutic modality because it might be better outcomes. This person is trying to improve the physiological, you know, how well prepared this person is. This personal trainer is trying to get them fitter so we don't need to worry about blood pressure, blah, blah, blah. If we're all pulling in the same direction, the goal is that the person who's really struggling is suffering less in a year, two years, whatever. Um, So, um, yeah, I just, I'm very excited. Uh, I'm glad to be back in Perth and we're going to focus a little bit more on people in this neck of the woods. And Uh, there are a lot of people in this neck of the woods that that a lot of people in the world don't know about. And they're, because they're underground and we think it's going, we were talking off off mic about how there's, um, this might be, this big country town might become San Francisco during Pride. We might all just come out together. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows uh, who's coming out of the woodwork? Um, if people do want to come out of the woodwork, um, they can contact me to save your inbox. But how would you like, I know you're available in lots of different places, but what's the, your preferred mode of people contacting you, you know, touching base with you? Probably email. Um, I'm, I'm making... 
some of my own changes at the moment, one of them is to try to limit my social media. In the past, people have often reached out through social media and I'm just not, I haven't deleted the apps yet, but I'm not opening them very often. Um, so, yeah, LinkedIn is one way. Uh, you can send me a message on LinkedIn or just an email. And and um, like I say, I do my best to, to respond to everybody. Um, it might take four or five, six weeks to get back to some people, but I get back to everybody. And, um, and, and if... Uh, yeah, my preferred modality is as probably um, a fairly short email, so that I can Not say trip his, reports, his no it, trip reports, no. please. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I can't get no, I can't give you MDMA. Yeah. Um, no, we don't have any places for yeah. therapists. We don't have any places for participants. We've we've got a wait list for our trial. Um, so I, my preferred modality is actually, um, phone, but I'm not going to give out my mobile <laughs> number. Um, but look, I'm not hard to find on the yeah, internet. I've got a landline, leave a message and I Go can call it. you back. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then w- when you get the message, when you, f- when you get the message, put down the phone as the good man says, um, listen, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time and, uh, that's a real pleasure. And yeah, I just look forward to supporting, uh, us move this forward to, um, to some sort of fruition in the near future. I feel like that's the other thing people can do is is support their local um, chapter of, of APS that are all about advocating for decriminalisation, creating community. Um, I, f- I feel like people can do lots that they're not aware of, um, which isn't about running clinical trials. It's, it's about advocacy. And um, so there's yeah, the, the APS, Entheogenesis Australis, has been around for maybe 30 years now in Australia. Um, this is a sister organisation of PRISM. There, there's lots of organ- – and it's all run by volunteers and it blows me away. I, I went to the APS um, AGM on Sunday, uh, Sunday afternoon, and they always blows me away just how professional their AGMs are and uh, and they're all volunteers because they just love they just they just they just love what they're doing and it blows me away that there's so much goodwill in people um, and I think you know I guess be be cautious with your goodwill because there are there are very uh, you know there are organisations out there that uh, potentially will take take the piss and that's what we know the story of what happened in the past. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, I'm not going to say nah, anything more. I, I, know, I know where you're going, but uh, I think, uh, yeah, it, for people listening as well, I this is a deeper dive. There's other talks. I'll link to all the more gener- the more uh, accessible talks, I suppose, that Stephen's done. But if there's been anything mentioned, I do really detailed show notes. I'll put a link to the organization or the thing we're talking about with a timestamp so people can go to the show notes, find the thing they're interested in, and then go back and listen to that section on the podcast. So I'm just making a shitload of work for myself, but I feel a sort of solidarity because I know you're going back to do forms, so I'll uh, be a glutton for some punishment and do a bit of project management myself. (laughs) So listen, Stephen, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that chat. I certainly did. If you want more information, please head over to mindmanifestpodcast.com for really detailed show notes. Also, please consider subscribing to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast. It really helps the channel. So thanks again to Stephen for being so gracious with his time. And in terms of interviews we have on deck, upcoming we have a chat with Chris Letheby. He's a philosopher and author of the book, The Philosophy of Psychedelics. 
We've also recently chatted with Alistair Vickery and Dr. Michael Winlow. They're the medical director and managing director, respectively, of Ameria, which is a Perth-based ASX-listed drug development company. And we chatted about a range of things, including their psychedelic-assisted therapy paradigms that they're currently developing. I've also recently chatted with Ian Dunican, so that conversation is on deck. He's a real renaissance man. He's a Perth-based sleep researcher, ultramarathon runner, endurance athlete, and business consultant, and the host of a couple of podcasts where he delves into not only sleep, but real esoteric topics. And of course, there's an overlap there with psychedelics. So we had a really interesting conversation about sleep and its overlap with psychedelics. So I hope you look forward to those and I hope to see you soon. And thanks again for listening. And until next time, no late to marry. <laughs>